This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back to the show, Rounds Table listeners. Thank you for joining us for another week today. I have a new special guest at the table. His name is Dr. Paul Bunce. He is an infectious disease and general internal medicine specialist at the University of Toronto and the University Health Network. Dr. Bunce, thank you for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Kieran. So you know I like to jump right in. Uh, it's Kieran Quinn, your host, as always. And uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about the article that you chose for this week? Sure. So the article I chose is entitled Prophylactic Antimicrobial Therapy for Acute Aspiration Pneumonitis. It was published online February 9th of 2018 in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases. The lead author was uh, Vlad Dragon, who is, a, I believe, a PGY3 in our program right now. And the main question that they asked is whether prophylactic antimicrobial therapy administered in the setting of an acute aspiration pneumonitis event resulted in better outcomes than those who received supportive care only. The authors found that the use of prophylactic antibiotic therapy within the first couple of days following an aspiration event was not associated with a reduction in mortality or transfer to the critical care unit compared with those who were managed supportively. Brilliant. This is an area of medicine that I've heard a lot of dogma around, and I think you're going to help to, uh, this study will help to uncover some of that dogma. So tell us, Dr. Bunce, why did you choose this article and frame it in the context of what we know about aspiration pneumonia? Sure. So I I think there's a few reasons. One is that we've always been taught, or most of us have been taught, and, and many of us are actually teaching, that aspiration pneumonitis is not an infectious event, not an infectious syndrome. And so that in general, on its own, it doesn't necessarily require antibiotic therapy, although there are some patients who will eventually develop pneumonia afterwards. That said, there's not a lot of evidence to justify the idea of holding back antibiotics. And while I'd say that most clinicians who manage these patients have an understanding that these patients may not all require antibiotics, on a case-by-case basis, it's often difficult for clinicians to hold back, and sometimes they kind of cave in and will give empiric antibiotics up front. The other reason is this article was published in an infectious diseases journal, and I think has very broad implications for many different clinicians who care for inpatients, and I thought it would be good to make sure we shared it with a broader audience. Yeah, certainly I agree. I I admittedly probably would have not come across this as I don't regularly read infectious disease journals, only out of just sort of self-naivety, but I really do appreciate you brought this forward. Uh, So tell us, uh, Paul, what was the design of the study? How did they go about looking at aspiration pneumonitis and pneumonia and antibiotics? Sure. So it's a retrospective cohort study carried out at a single center in Toronto in Canada. And basically they included and reviewed the charts of all acute care adult inpatients, both on medical and surgical wards, who had a macro aspiration event and a chest x-ray that demonstrated a new radiographic infiltrate. They did exclude people who were intubated and people who were on antibiotics at baseline. So sort of a very practical approach to the study to say anybody basically who's in hospital who's not in the critical care unit or on antibiotics who has an aspiration as indicated by a chest x-ray indication this is sort of who we're looking at as our population yep that's correct okay and so what were they using to compare as far as their exposure in this study so the main uh, uh, differentiator was those patients who had an aspiration event who received antibiotics targeting respiratory pathogens within the first 48 hours following an aspiration event versus those who did not. Now, one thing that I always think about when I'm treating uh, upfront for these types of aspiration events um, and, and whether I cave or not to giving antibiotics is sort of, is it a bad thing uh, from an antimicrobial resistance standpoint 
to give one or two days of antimicrobials and then when you realize that this person is getting better, this is just pneumonitis, that you pull back. Is What are your thoughts on that uh, approach, Paul? So there, there's some evidence that gives us the sense that that might not be the worst thing to do in patients. So be able to start antibiotics and then stop once you realize it's not an infectious syndrome. The problem is it's often very difficult for clinicians to actually stop antibiotics once they've started them. Uh, we see this in practice all the time. Uh, and it's also the case that even a single dose or a couple of doses of antibiotics do have an effect on the microbiome. They can increase the risk of the development of resistance. And as many of us are taught, and the, the evidence shows that even a single dose of antibiotics can predispose someone to developing something like C. difficile. Uh, I think that's very important to put both from a C. difficile uh, perspective, but also it's easier to give than to take it away. I completely agree. We're much better at writing prescriptions than deprescribing medications. So tell us, Paul, what were the primary outcomes then? What were they looking at as far as the aspiration events and what, the pa what happened to the patients? So the primary outcome was uh, defined as in-hospital mortality within 30 days of the aspiration event. And secondary outcomes uh, primarily was uh, transferred to critical care from the ward. Uh, they also looked at some other secondary outcomes such as escalation of therapy, uh, antibiotic-free days, um, as well as other uh, outcomes. Yeah, I think there is one of the points that gets at, at least I think would be related to what you were saying earlier about escalation of antibiotic therapy. So not only are we starting things up front, maybe we escalate it because we become impatient and we change our antibiotics and increasing risk of complications just from that exposure itself. All right. Well, I, I get an idea of what we're looking at here. I think it's a well-designed study. So tell us then what were the main findings? What did they see with these patients? So it's quite impressive. The trainees who were involved uh, reviewed almost 1,500 charts, uh, of which 200 met the case definition of acute aspiration pneumonitis. And about 38% of those received prophylactic antimicrobial therapy, whereas about 60% received supportive management only. Exactly 25% of patients in each group met the primary outcome of death within 30 days, although, of course, that's not uh, statistically different. And uh, there was no difference when they did adjusted as well as unadjusted uh, analyses. So even when they adjusted for comorbidities, there was no difference between the primary outcome. And the supportive care group also had less antibiotic exposure over the 30-day evaluation period. And as far as the, the balance between the two groups, I mean, one thing that I noted when I was going through this article was that the supportive care group, those that did not receive antibiotics, while most things were relatively balanced, they seemed to be a slightly healthier population on its own. So, for example, you know, 21% versus 16% in the supportive care group were admitted to critical care. And, you know, there were some imbalances in underlying comorbidities. I just wonder if when you think about the physician who's making the decision to give or not to give antibiotics in a slightly healthier cohort, they would be more comfortable holding off antibiotics and them versus those, somebody who uh, who's a bit, you know, sicker at baseline. What, what are your thoughts? I think that's a very good point. I mean, the authors did try to balance retrospectively comorbidities and sort of severity of illness, but you're right. There is something unique about the way to judge the actual acuity of illness in a patient and how tenuous they might be at the time. Yeah, and I think to your point that even if you accepted that that was the introduction of some sort of bias, selection bias between the two groups, you probably would not overcome a lack of any meaningful difference uh, between the two groups, even if you had them perfectly randomized at baseline. So for me, at least, I think that those findings are believable and true. What about you, Paul? Did you, did you think there was anything interesting or concerns you had about this uh, study that you wanted to point out? I don't have any real concerns. I think I was more impressed with 
the quality and the rigor that the, the authors went through in sort of developing the study. I think the breadth of the patient population that they included is probably its biggest strength. And the applicability of this to basically all acute care adult inpatients who are not in the ICU. And it's a very common clinical situation that we're faced with. I think although we, we recognize that a randomized control study might provide more reliable or valid data, I think the complexity of the situation makes that very difficult. And so I give credit for the authors for at least going this far. And the completeness in the data in terms of collecting secondary outcomes, I thought was also quite impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Hats off to the two lead authors in going through over 1,400 charts to then get a good complete data set on 200 who were included. That's, that's no small undertaking, having done some chart review myself. So hats off to them. What about any limitations in this kind of a retrospective uh, study, Paul? So I think it's the same limitations we would describe with all retrospective studies. And I think, like you mentioned, patients who receive prophylactic antibiotics might have appeared more tenuous in measures or ways that we can't reveal or aren't revealed in a, a chart review. But I think, like I said, the, the efforts to balance the severity of illness in general with uh, measuring these comorbidities does sort of balance that a little bit. Yeah. And, and I like their choice of an outcome of mortality. I mean, certainly you could have looked at hospital length of stay or development of clinical pneumonia, which is a subjective sort of interpretation sometimes. But ultimately, what we're trying to do in treating these events uh, or supporting these events, whichever way you like to look at it, is to save patients' lives. And ultimately, we don't find a difference. Um, so I think that was an important approach to this kind of a study. So what do you think then uh, overall, Dr. Bunce? Are you going to accept this as a true finding and it's, uh, or, or do you think that we still need further study in this area? So I think it's always nice when a well-conducted study reaffirms your practice or at least your beliefs. So I think it will provide me a little bit more affirmation in that. Uh, it gives me a little bit more evidence when I'm communicating with other colleagues as well. So I think despite its limitations, it's a very well-conducted study, and I don't expect a randomized trial to be conducted anytime soon or if at all on this topic. So I think this might be the best evidence we have. All right, Paul. Well, thank you for that. What do you, what do you want the listeners to take away from? You're, you're an infectious disease consultant. I would often call you in certain situations like this for your opinion. In this kind of a study, what, what are you hoping that uh, clinicians and healthcare providers are going to learn from this study? So I, I think recognizing that not all patients, even in the setting of acute illness, would require antibiotics, and that sometimes observation is as good and, and sometimes better than early empiric antibiotic therapy. And in the setting of aspiration pneumonia, or pneumonitis, sorry, I think observation, if the patient is stable, often uh, would have a greater benefit to the patient. And certainly there's no evidence of increased harm of waiting to see if they do develop an actual pneumonia. So you began this study by talking about your own clinical practice and hoping or trying not to, but occasionally caving on giving antibiotics. What do you think in the context of, uh, of this study? Is this going to change the way you practice? So like I mentioned, I think it, hopefully I, I practice sort of following this idea already, but I can definitely admit to times where I, I might be swayed uh, with that increased concern of development of pneumonia. So I think it will reaffirm what I believed and hopefully strengthen my conviction when I am faced with these situations in the future. Fantastic. It certainly is going to affirm and change my practice as well. So thank you very much for that. Let's move on to the study that I chose for this week. Of course, we're taking advantage of the fact that we have an infectious disease specialist uh, with us as a host on the rounds table. So I decided to look at a research letter that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine by Dr. Lauren Koh and her group in April of 2018. 
and it's in the context of less is more. So really what Dr. Koh was looking at was the clinical usefulness of imaging modalities and blood cultures in the context of patients who present with uncomplicated cellulitis. Excellent. Uh, interesting and uh, an important topic in my mind. So what's the bottom line? Well, Paul, this was a study of over 183 patients who presented to the emergency department with a diagnosis of uncomplicated cellulitis, and ultimately they were admitted to the hospital. What Dr. Koh found was that there was a concerning and prevalent use of imaging and blood cultures that actually contravened the Infectious Disease Society of America's guidelines on their use. Furthermore, these testing modalities rarely changed management, and ultimately, if you scaled that up across the United States, would result in an estimated $225 million in unnecessary costs annually. So the take-home for me from this was that imaging and blood cultures should be pursued only in patients who are severely immunocompromised or experiencing systemic sort of septic toxic effects from their cellulitis. Excellent. So you don't have to convince me, but uh, why do you think this article is important to the listeners of the podcast? Well, I'm going to ask you a question here first, Dr. Bunce, as an ID consultant. Is it fair to say that cellulitis is a fairly common infectious illness? Yeah, I've never seen a case of cellulitis. No, it's very common. It's very commonly encountered in the emergency room and on our medicine wards. <laughs> So in the context of how common it is, and in the era of choosing wisely campaign, where we're looking at making informed decisions, starting these conversations, as well as overall, we're trying to contain rising medical costs. We're always looking to identify areas where costs are being spent, let's call it inappropriately. So there are clear guidelines from the Infectious Disease Society that say that patients with uncomplicated cellulitis do not need imaging or blood cultures, unless they are one, immunocompromised, two, exhibiting systemic toxic effects, or three, had an animal bite, because things are slightly different in that context and you can have deeper seated infections. So what this study really wanted to do was evaluate just how much we're sort of flipping our noses at those guidelines and to look at really are these testing modalities making a difference in the treatment of cellulitis. So um, why don't you tell me a little bit the format of the study? So this was a retrospective study, um, included patients who presented to the emergency department at Massachusetts General Hospital between October 2014 and February 2017. So recent study in the era of current medical practice. They looked at adults who presented with a presumed diagnosis, that's at the time of emergency department presentation, of uncomplicated cellulitis. For those of you who are not familiar with cellulitis, uncomplicated just simply means they were not known to be immunocompromised, they weren't very sick, or toxic, so to speak, and they hadn't been bitten by an animal. So essentially, those Infectious Disease Society guidelines, recommendations that I was mentioning earlier, where blood cultures and imaging are not indicated in this population. So uh, what was the primary intervention of the study? So this was a descriptive uh, analysis study. Really, they were just looking at how frequently were blood cultures and imaging modalities ordered on these individuals, and how frequently did it change management in these individuals overall. The secondary sort of outcomes they looked at were the estimated costs of the diagnostic imaging and blood cultures for these patients. And they did this by sort of looking at annual hospitalization rates for cellulitis across the U.S. and assuming that other medical centers, uh, academic medical centers at least, were ordering testing at a similar rate. And that's how they scaled up their estimates. So Karen, uh, what were the primary outcomes of the study or what were the key findings? So this is quite fascinating to me. Um, so of 183 patients who were admitted to hospital, right, not sent home with uncomplicated cellulitis, about a third received blood cultures, and only 10% of those actually should have received blood cultures according to the infectious disease guidelines. 
uh, ultimately they only captured growth in one a patient of those 33% who received blood cultures. When you looked at the imaging modalities, over two-thirds of the patients received some form of imaging modality. So 45% received just one imaging modality, 16% had two, which was mostly x-rays and ultrasounds of, the, of the, their lower extremities or wherever their cellulitis was. And these individuals were more likely to have chronic lymphedema and elevated blood glucose, uh, so that made you more likely to receive some sort of imaging testing. But here's where the interesting part comes in. When you looked at how the imaging actually changed the diagnosis and management, it only occurred in eight patients of those two-thirds of the entire cohort who received imaging testing. So in one case, there was a hematoma. In a few cases, there was an abscess. And in two patients, it was discovered they had osteomyelitis. But that's really, really small potatoes on the larger scale of how many patients actually received what the Infectious Disease Society would call inappropriate testing. It's funny, it reminds me of the line that uh, the most common recommendation for ra a radiology study is to do another radiology study. So sometimes I guess clinicians have that same intuition. So can you tell me, uh, are there any key points or observations you want to make about the study or anything that really caught your eye? Well, you know, of course there's going to be lots of easy criticisms on retrospective studies as we sort of talked about. And, you know, these are hospitalized patients, so what about all those who went home from the emergency department? What, did that, what happened to them? The one thing I wanted to point out, though, really, I think, is it's easy for me or anybody to sort of sit back the next day and in the context of a retroscope say, look, you did these things, you shouldn't have done them. but you know that that nuanced decision-making up front isn't as easy as it is to criticize the next day. And so my question that comes from this study is, what's driving this inappropriate rate of testing for these types of patients? Is it, is it an educational thing that, that physicians are just not aware of the Infectious Disease Society guidelines? Or is there something else at the time that makes them decide to go ahead and choose to order those testing? And I bring that up because the only way to fix those issues is to understand them better. And I don't think uh, at all from this study we get a, an idea of why that's happening. So yeah, Karen, I think it is a complicated issue and there's def it's definitely multifactorial. I think education certainly helps, but also recognizing that a lot of clinicians in the, the setting or acute care setting when patients are presenting are concerned that they don't want to miss a more sinister diagnosis, such as a, a deep soft tissue infection or even osteomyelitis. And so that might predispose them or preclude them to, to do further imaging or further investigations. And also, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the, the rates of bacteremia and cellulitis is exceedingly low overall. I think it's been estimated around 2%. And so I agree with the results, but I don't know if people realize how unlikely they are to isolate a pathogen in uncomplicated cellulitis. Yeah, I think, I mean, even in the context of financially linked institutional motivations to do, let's call them bundles, you know, blood cultures might be drawn reflexively on anybody who presents with sepsis before they even figure out what the sepsis is caused by. But certainly I agree your point about imaging, that requires uh, thought from a physician to then go ahead and order it. And uh, I agree there, there are probably two separate issues that need to be addressed independently. So what are the main learning points of this article that you want people to take home? Well, I think that this study is helpful to highlight overall, at least at you know, MGH, but I would, I would assume that this is a larger issue across the U.S. and North America, that there is overall an inappropriate use of testing modalities in uncomplicated cellulitis. And that has important implications for patient safety as well for rising healthcare costs. 
And I think what we should take away from this study is that as a physician, you should pause and be mindful when you're considering different types of testing in a patient who presents with uncomplicated cellulitis, as this study and others previously have showed that they rarely change management and uh, you're not really, you shouldn't really be concerned overall about a safety uh, issue. Ultimately, I think that institutions should consider different types of studies, whether that's a quality improvement initiative or other initiatives to understand what's driving the ordering of these modalities so that ultimately we can fix it and not sacrifice uh, patient safety at the same time. I think that's an excellent point. I agree with you. I'm going to take you now to the ever inquisitive and entertaining Emily Hughes and Shaliza Halani, who have a special segment for us this week on the intricacies of publishing research articles. They have a very special guest who, who comes from the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and I'll turn it over to them to take you through this week's special segment. Welcome back, listeners, to another special segment on the Ramps Table. I'm Emily Hughes, and I'm joined by our special segment developer, Shaliza Halani. We are both medical students at the University of Toronto. For those who tune in regularly to our show, you know that our show highlights advances in research from the major medical journals. What we don't usually cover is the editorial process. What does it actually take for a manuscript to be accepted for publication? Today, hopefully, we'll shed some light on this question. We are speaking with Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor at the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Dr. Stanbrook is a staff respirologist at Toronto Western Hospital. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dr. Sandbrook. I'm Shaliza. It's so nice to have you here. I think that the editorial process can be a mystery for authors. Can you give us a brief overview of the process at CMATCH? Sure, Shaliza. So we get a lot of research articles every year. In, in 2017, we got over 600, which is just less than half of the total number of submissions we receive. So our research articles go through the same process every time. They're initially read by at least two and sometimes three of the scientific editors. And we make an initial decision whether to reject them outright or to send them out for external peer review based on the consensus of at least two editors. So if two editors think it should be rejected outright, that's it. We get the letter out quickly so we don't waste author's time. If it goes for peer review, then we see what the reviewers say. If the reviews are, are generally bad, then the paper may be rejected again at that point. If they're okay, the paper then goes to a full meeting of the scientific editors where the paper is discussed in detail and we reach a consensus decision as to what to do next. One of three things can happen to it then. It can either be rejected after that careful consideration we can decide that we want to publish the manuscript, in which case it goes through one or two rounds of revision that's supervised by one editor, then it's accepted, laid out for publication, copy edited, and published. Or the third possibility is we can decide that we don't have enough information to make a publication decision, and so we give an opportunity to the authors to revise and resubmit to try and give us what we need to make a decision. So in terms of how the numbers break down, of all the research papers we get, about three quarters of them are rejected without going out for peer review. One quarter will go to peer review. Of that one quarter, about a third ultimately get published. So it works out in the end to about 8% of all research papers submitted to CMAJ ultimately get published. And that number is roughly similar to the acceptance rate of other general medical journals in the world. Very interesting. Thank you. So what would you say is the single most important factor that editors consider when deciding if an article should continue forward in the editorial process? 
the single most important factor is scientific validity. So the decision really lives or dies on whether or not the paper meets all the, the criteria for valid, credible research. And so we, the editors at CMAJ and those of other medical journals, do what you guys do at the rounds table when you appraise articles, but in, in great detail and with careful consideration of study design and methodology. And this is what we, we do through our review processes and when in our meeting discussions. And what we do in going through the revisions with the authors to make sure that it meets that test for validity so that readers can believe in the research. Other important factors for publication include novelty. So we like to publish things that are either the first of their kind or that are significantly better at answering the research question than any attempt that's been made before. And a third important factor is relevance to our readership. And being a general medical journal, we want papers that are relevant to a broad subset of physicians in, in various areas. And on the flip side, how about the most common reasons for rejection? So the most common reasons for rejection would be the converse of those three reasons I mentioned. So uh, often papers are too narrow and too specialized and they're not of broad enough relevance for our readership. Papers may have trouble with scientific validity. They may have a fatal flaw that just can't be overcome. If we think that the authors may be able to overcome it, we do our best to help them find ways that they could modify their design or make revisions to their analysis that could address it. And they may or may not choose to work with us on that. Probably the most common single reason for rejection, though, is novelty. So it's important to, to mention that CMAJ is an international general medical journal that happens to be based in Canada. And so when we look at novelty, we do look at it from a global perspective. Often we get things that may be the first in Canada, but are identical to things that have been done elsewhere. And so we really look for things that are either novel or so uniquely relevant to, to the Canadian context that replicating it in Canada is in and of itself a novelty. So I have a feeling that I'm going to know where you're going to go with this question, but what advice do you really have for researchers when designing a research study so that the chances for publication in a journal like CMAJ are really high? Well, beyond what I've said already, if I had one piece of advice to give to researchers, it's don't take shortcuts with your science. I'm a researcher as well as a journal editor and have been for many years, and so from my experience, I, I perceive that the reality of, of academic life often creates sort of perverse incentives, paradoxical incentives, in that, you know, in our academic careers, we're, we're driven to publish as much as we can, as fast as we can. And, you know, we have to do this with limited time and, and resources uh, in order to, to accomplish research. And so often the pressure to just get it done can take priority over the, the imperative to get it right. And I see this more and more leading people away from the, the good science that they know how to do because of these, these pressures. We have to remember as scientists that the one job we really have is not just to get our papers published somewhere and move on. It's to translate the knowledge, the new knowledge that we find, as effectively and broadly as possible to others. And the best tool we have to do that is to get our work published in high-impact journals that can really disseminate our work broadly. 
And, and so I see all the time research questions that are worthy of publication in prominent big journals, but that fail to do so because of shortcuts that were taken. And so I, I would say to researchers, don't take shortcuts, take the trouble to get it right so that you can really have the impact that your work deserves to have. I think that's fantastic advice. Uh, just a quick, more technical question. What is the role of the cover letter when researchers are submitting to CMAJ? What do you look for in a strong cover letter? Cover letters are an opportunity for authors to advertise their work to the editors in a very concise way where you get their attention. Not all journals pay attention to cover letters, but we at CMAJ do because we find that they're often valuable to us. They're a chance for authors to tell us why the study is important and deserves to be published in our journal. To do that effectively, authors should make sure their cover letter is concise, it should be less than a page, and it shouldn't just be a restatement of the abstract, which is something I see authors do. It should highlight those key reasons why the paper is important and should be published in the journal you're sending it to. It's also an opportunity for authors to say things to the editors that they can't say in the paper itself. For example, CMAJ doesn't allow authors to publish a statement that their findings are the first to do something. We do that because authors are often wrong in that, and that can be a little bit embarrassing for the authors and the journal. But in the cover letter, you can do that. And although we'll vet that statement, it gives us a reason to want to be interested in the paper. So I encourage authors to make use of the cover letter to help us do our job better and serve authors better. Thank you so much. Do you have any other final thoughts to add? No, uh, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to to help shed light on what we do, because I think it is puzzling to lots and lots of authors and researchers out there, and we do our best to help them see why a journal like CMAJ can be a really, really important vehicle to help them do the important work that they're doing. Well, Paul, it's been a great introduction to the show having you on, but as you know, it's now my favorite time and my favorite part of the rounds table. It's the Good Stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. And Paul, what are you reading about this week? So a study that caught my attention that's entitled Infectious Diseases Specialty Intervention is Associated with Decreased Mortality and Lower Healthcare Costs. It was published in Open Forum Infectious Diseases in March of 2018 by Burnham and colleagues. And this is a retrospectively designed study where they basically analyzed patients who were admitted to hospital were diagnosed with multi-drug resistant organism infections, uh, either from sterile sites or from uh, pulmonary sampling over a 10-year period. And they measured uh, all-cause mortality at 30 days, as well as at one year, and its association with ID consultation. And they, they identified over 4,000 patients. And the basic point and the basic outcome was ID consultation was associated with significant reductions in the primary outcomes of mortality for several multi-drug resistant organisms, including resistant Staph aureus and resistant uh, gram negatives, such as ESBL organisms. So on its own, the study has several limitations. It's retrospective, and you can might recognize that it's, it's not the highest impact factor uh, journal out there. But it is interesting, and the findings are consistent with a number of other studies showing the benefits of ID consultation for other infectious syndromes, such, such as Staph aureus bacteremia, uh, infective endocarditis, candidemia, as well as some other infections. And so, although I am a bit biased, I think it's important as an infectious disease uh, practitioner to be aware that hopefully we can offer something of benefit in these complicated infections. 
Well, I certainly am not trying to butter you up in saying this, but I am shocked that people would even question the usefulness of an infectious disease consultant because I certainly value all of your opinions when I ask for help, and I ask for help a lot. So, Paul, I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn on you here. We're going to move away from infectious disease. But this, this article in National uh, Public Radio NPR site that I read caught my attention and I thought it would be interesting to bring up. So it's a little bit on gender mix in medicine. And it, the article talked about that the specialty of obstetrics and gynecology has traditionally been dominated by female physicians. The estimates are around 82% of residents entering programs are women. And many patients specifically request female doctors to look after their gynecological issues. So I made me think about, is the field predominantly female by order of historical and patient-driven selection? What the article, though, disturbingly goes on to talk about is that despite the female predominance, older physicians who hold key leadership positions in the field of OBGYN tend to be male, and that further reinforces our understanding of gender bias that exists in medicine. So the article's title is, you know, reflectively makes me think about the question, are more male OBGYNs needed in the field? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it's a time we have time to even discuss it. but. An interesting read, and we'll post the link for those of you uh, who are interested in this area of gender bias in medicine. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. I think it'd certainly be curious to know what the experience of both trainees and male and female staff who are on faculties or are practicing in the field as well. Let's get a sense of their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Bunce, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We hope that you're going to come back and join us again in the future on the rounds table. And until then, I bid you a good day, sir. Thank you very much, and uh, it was a pleasure to be here. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, Communications Director Anthony Maher, Segment Developer Shaliza Halani, and Faculty Mentor and Founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.